uh, we are going to move into our sermon this morning. And now we are actually on the Titus part of our James and Titus service uh, sermon series. And so continuing with a really similar theme, uh, pretty much how we live reflects our beliefs. It reflects our Christianity. When we say that we are Christians, that word simply means we are like little Christ. We are Christ-like. And so our lives need to reflect that word, that we are Christians. Now, the background of Titus is going to be different than James. The author of Titus is Paul, and he's actually writing to uh, essentially a pastor named Titus. He was pastoring this church in Crete, and Titus was uh, set with the job of setting up elders to take care of the churches on this island of, of Crete, which is in Greece. Now, if you're a history buff, I, I quite enjoy history. Uh, during this time uh, in history, Crete has a, a reputation or had a reputation of, of, it's not a great one. Uh, the reputation of Crete is as morally deplorable. They were known for being dishonest and lazy. If you uh, read old literature, there is a, sign, uh, there's a saying for uh, if you are dishonest, that you're from Crete, essentially is a Greek word that describes the people from Crete. Isn't that awesome? That you literally have a word that describes who you are, and it's not a good one. And if you're reading Titus, which I really encourage you to do as we're doing this sermon series, I'm only going to be touching on little points, giving you the overall theme, but I definitely encourage you to read the book of Titus. It's a short one. It's three chapters. And if you read uh, chapter 1 of Titus, verse 12, right there, Paul gets right into the reputation of who they are in Crete. Uh, um, It isn't necessarily a great place, but um, the focus here, again, written to Titus, who was pastoring this thing, the focus is how do we keep a group of believers uh, to to actually act like believers in the context of where they are living? And and even though we're talking about uh, Crete's reputation, it's not very different than us. Obviously, the book of Titus was written in a particular language to a particular people at a particular time, but uh, I don't think it's a really far stretch to look at the culture that we're living in and, and that we don't see those same things too. Do we have dishonest people uh, in our culture today? No, we don't? Yeah, we kind of do, right? Lazy, right? Do we have kind of lazy people in this culture today? Yeah, we kind of do, and we see it daily, and we're, we're living not just in the outside culture, but that kind of culture also... Uh, um, uh, infiltrates our church culture. And, and, and like Crete, so Crete was made up uh, of a people group that was very, uh, lots of variety. Now, Crete was an island, but it was also a major port and, and, and a, a really uh, high population area. And so Crete was full of both Jewish believers, Greek believers. Uh, this church was made up of, of slaves, but also masters and free people. And, and actually, if you look in history, the, the churches in Crete were actually quite doing quite well. So there's lots of people there. And even though there was like lots of this different demographic, uh, uh, it didn't really matter because they did not look a lot different than the city that they were in. And if that sounds familiar, it's because, you know, I really feel it's really applicable to North America, our culture, our scenario right now, when a lot of ways we don't look very different than the world around us. And it's not meant to, to come out overtly negative, but rather a, a self-awareness to say, as we're reading these things, that, oh, that, that was just for, for Crete, that was just a letter for Titus, but it's applicable today. And, and so how does Paul then begin to address this with Titus? Again, Titus is a pastor, so the focus is, is, as leaders, how do we keep believers actually living like believers? And so Paul spends 
pretty much three quarters of the letter uh, uh, reestablishing, not reestablishing, but, but laying down this foundation of the gospel. Now, when you hear the word gospel, sometimes we get a little bit confused because we call kind of the first four books of the New Testament the gospel. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, right? That's the gospel. Now, those are the gospels. But when we say the word gospel, it is the message of Jesus Christ. Uh, um, what, everything he did here on earth, his death, his resurrection, and who we are now through Jesus Christ. That is the this, this message of the gospel. And so Paul is laying this foundation of, of grace, the salvation through grace, adoption by grace. We, our identity is defined by grace, and there's power given to the believers in the church to demonstrate that grace or to demonstrate that gospel. And as pastors here with, with, with Cody and myself, and when James is preaching and Melissa's preaching, and we had Pastor Jen here, we're really working on laying this foundation of grace. And the foundation is, is the foundation of Jesus Christ. And, and we can't build up outside of a firm and a strong foundation. And that's why it's really important to have a proper understanding of grace in its fullness, in its entirety. That, that grace, that we are saved by grace, that, that we are brought into this family of Christ by grace alone. And, and when we have, and, and when we're teaching and we're understanding grace properly, the natural question is then, I can do whatever I want and we still have grace. And, and that means you're kind of understanding it kind of correctly, but that's not the purpose of grace. That is just a foundation. That's where we start from. And spiritual maturity is when we transition from just grace, but that grace actually leads into our actions. Does that kind of make sense? So grace is the foundation, and maturity is when we understand grace, it then begins to leak into or begins to have an effect on how we actually act, live, and talk. Right? They're not mutually exclusive. It isn't just grace and law. It is when grace is understood per, uh, uh, correctly, it leads into how we live. And again, like the church, if I can make a statement so bold in general, I don't fully believe that the church today, whether it be here, this church, the Church of Powell River, Church of North America, does a great job of actually living that differently from the culture that we're in. And again, it's not meant to be a really heavy criticism, but an awareness that we are called to live and be like Jesus Christ. And not, that is not an unattainable goal. Rather, Jesus saw it as not only just something that we should be doing, but he even said, we'll be doing even greater things than him because we have now the Holy Spirit and there's more than just one Jesus. There's all of us. We are all filled with his Holy Spirit. And if we're looking at not just Titus, but in general, these letters that Paul writes, the pastoral letters they're called, and the messages in the New Testament, there's this general theme of how we begin to walk out and live like followers of Jesus Christ. And it starts with a sense of humility. And humility, I couldn't think of a better word, but this humility in recognizing that we need to, in a way, submit to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. We need to learn as believers how to turn, how to repent, how to change. And the second thing that we'll see as a theme throughout this book is that we need to live out what we believe. It needs to be reflected in what we do. So with that and theme in mind, we're going to start in Titus, and we're going to start with the first two verses here. 
Titus chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. This letter is from Paul, a slave of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. I have been sent to proclaim faith to those God has chosen and to teach them to know the truth that shows them how to live godly lives. The truth gives them confidence and that, that they have eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised them before the world began. So let's pause there. If we remember kind of the background and the theme of, of, of the book of Titus, Paul is writing to, again, a pastor who's living in a culture that is known for being dishonest and lazy. And so Paul uses an intentional word here. He calls himself, in most of his letters, Paul addresses himself as a slave to God. Now, to any New Testament church that is reading this, the word slave that Paul is using is not a slave like we understand in our culture today. This isn't like uh, um, kind of our North American definition or understanding of the word slave. But this particular word, you might have heard if you've been in church long enough, this, this term kind of bond servant. What this particular word slave means, it's a, a, a willingly, I willingly come under and I willingly serve. And now the intention of this statement I, I want to highlight is, is that, that we even sung this morning that, that we are free and we have been made free. God has set us free from the, 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 the legalization of the law, that, that no longer do we have to live out a particular way to receive favor from God. But through Jesus Christ, through his death as, as in resurrection, he has already paid the price and we are free. But Paul is highlighting that even in my freedom, I willingly come under and attach myself to God and I serve him willingly. It's this idea, and you see it throughout Scripture, that even though I am uh, in a position uh, 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 of, of freedom or like here, I willingly come under. I willingly submit. I willingly uh, um, serve. And so again, why it's important that we do what we do and why it's important to live out our faith is not to please God because that, that was already taken care of by the cross of Jesus Christ. It is this willingness, I come under and I still serve you because I love you. It is this devotion, I come under. And so Paul is saying right away to Titus, he's establishing this, I am a slave. I willingly come under the authority of God. Because of love. And this is where I start. And so Paul uh, uh, makes a, a pretty clear statement in the first two, uh, uh, two verses here. That first, he's establishing this. That truth, uh, establishing a truth that equals living godly lives. A truth that actually reflects God. And if you want to think about this, Paul sometimes refers to us as a mirror. That we actually reflect the glory of God. Right? And if a mirror is broken, tainted, or positioned the wrong way, you know, what is it reflecting and what is our lives reflecting? So Paul's saying there's a truth, there is a teaching that actually positions ourselves that we actually reflect God. Because the reflection of God is a reflection of who he is. To, to those that cannot see God, we are that reflection. Does that kind of make sense? So a truth that reflects God and a truth that equals a confidence that we are different. That when we go through life and when we encounter life, we walk through it differently. When we are tested, we respond differently. That we don't look like the world around us because we are different because we have God's Spirit in us. So truth that equals or leads to a change 
in how we live and a truth that reflects the nature and the character of God. And so again, the focus for Titus as a pastor of this church is how do we construct a structure that establishes a teaching that leads to lives changed? Uh, think of it this way. If you're a gardener, and I'm a really, really bad gardener. I, I really, really am. But, but a, a gardener looks at plants, and he wants to plant them and position them in a way that it will actually grow. So a gardener takes care of the soil, positions it so it knows where the afternoon sun is, and it gets plenty of sun. And, you know, if you've ever grown tomatoes, my dad's a really excellent gardener, and Italians, we know how to grow tomatoes. And you understand, tomatoes are a really fickle thing because uh, you need water for a plant to grow, but if a tomato gets too much water on its leaves or actually on the fruit, it grows some rot, right? And so if you look at any Italian's yard, they position their tomatoes in a way that when it, you know, they'll either have a cover over it so it still gets sun, but it protects it from the rain. It positions itself to grow. And, and now as pastors and leaders, this is what the gospel does. It sets us up and it positions ourselves so that when we are rooted in the right foundation, when we're rooted in the right soil, when we're positioned to receive that watering that comes from the Holy Spirit, we actually grow, right? I, I, I can tell you from experience, just because you plant something, it doesn't mean it'll grow, <laughs> Right? And it's the same thing with that gospel message. If it's not rooted, it won't grow. So how do we establish an understanding that actually allows for growth? Now, um, when I actually, I wrote this sermon, I was kind of going in a different direction, but there was a phrase and a section of scripture that really stood out over and over and over again. So we're going to kind of shift a little bit. And we're going to look at two verses. And we're going to look at two verses, and we're kind of going to dive a little bit deeper here. So the verses we're going to focus on is one that I always used to quote for fun and kind of make fun of. So maybe this is why it stood out. But it's verses 15 and 16. It says this. Everything is pure to those whose hearts are pure, but nothing is pure to those who are corrupt and unbelieving, because their minds and consciences are corrupt. Such people claim they know God, but they deny him by the way they live. They are detestable and disobedient, worthless, uh, uh, worthless for doing anything good. So again, let's, let's like look at this. Now, it's super clear. And this is one of the reasons why I really like James, why I really like Titus, is because I'm like that type of guy that I don't pick up on hints. Not all guys are like this, but in general, like I, I, you guys got to lay it out. I am not the most, and James and Titus, there is no like, reading really in between the lines. So what Titus is, uh, what Paul is saying here to Titus is really, really clear, that unless our lives reflect what we say, what we say means very little. Or in one of our terms, talk is cheap. And we, I think we all relate to this because we've either experienced people, or maybe we are those people, who like to say a lot, but there's not a lot of substance the quality of our lives. Has anyone ever worked with that guy before? You know what I'm talking about? Who like, before you start, I, I used to love hiring people because I, I used to work for a sandblasting company and this is more evident in construction than anything else. And like, usually we're hiring people because we really, really need them. And so it's really easy to get a construction job if we're being honest. Anyone work in construction, right? And you ever have that guy that come up to you and it all of a sudden has all the, oh yeah, I know what I'm doing. Oh yeah, I've done it forever. And they, you know, criticize everybody's work. And then all of a sudden you start working. You're like, they have no idea what they're doing. You know what I mean? 
And now begin to apply that with anyone who says, I am a Christian. Oh, yeah, I know what it's like to be a Christian. You know, God and this and that and that. And then all of a sudden you look at the, the substance of their lives and you're like, that's not much different than me. So unless our lives reflect what we say, what we say means very little. But there's something even deeper here. And so I kept this, these two verses kept running through my mind. And so if you don't know me, I, I really, really like words. Uh, before kind of being a pastor, my goal, I wanted to be a Bible translator. So I love language. I love words. And, and, and so uh, I began to look at this. And now if you look at the particular wording, so in, in verse 15, it says, everything is pure to those whose hearts are pure. Now Paul uses a really particular word for the word pure. Now in the English language, we need context to understand words. Let me give you an example, right? Like, so if I just say the word trunk, I can mean tree trunk. I can mean an elephant's trunk. I can mean the back of a car. But context kind of gives us what we mean. So if I'm like, hey, look at that elephant. He has a trunk. I'm not referring to a tree, right? I'm referring to an elephant. So now in the Greek language, you also need context, but sometimes they build context into the particular word. So in Greek, there's like four or five different words for pure. But here, Paul is using one. It's katharos, and it means uh, clean, like a vine that's cleansed by pruning and is ready to produce fruit. Now, Crete is very, very well known at this time for their wine. And so uh, uh, growing uh, fruit on vines is something they're very, very familiar with. And so Paul uses this word to Titus, and there's automatically this understanding. Essentially what he's saying, to to the pruned, I have it written down here, uh, uh, um, to the pruned, uh, um, they will produce fruit. To the prune, they will produce fruit. Now, again, I am not a very good gardener. And, and so uh, I don't really know a lot about pruning. But the next word that Paul uses is, so to the pure, all things remain pure. But to those who are corrupt and unbelieving, because their minds uh, and consciences are corrupted. Now, that word corrupt, again, he's using is particular, and it's connected to the idea of pruning. And that word corrupted means stained or tainted. So um, our very first house that Katie and I owned, it was built by an Italian guy in the uh, uh, mid-50s. And it had, uh, um, uh, in the backyard, he built this trestle thing. And we had grapes. And there was vines everywhere. And and, uh, I was really, really excited. Actually, Concord grapes, they're dark, deep, beautiful purple grapes. And I remember growing up with these grapes because you would squish it and the skins come off and you just eat the nice grapes on the inside. So I was super excited. I remember eating one of those grapes and it tasted, the best I can describe it was kind of woody. And so they weren't very, very good grapes. And so I would just kind of just leave them or take them out and throw them out. Now, uh, this is a longer story, which I'm not going to share, but if you want to know the full story, ask me at lunch today because it's a great one. But uh, we actually had a police officer in our backyard one day and he noticed our vineyard. And he's like, man, I love vineyards. I, I love grapes. And, and I'm like, oh, these grapes aren't very good. And so he ate one. He's like, ah, it's got old wood. And I'm like, what the heck does that mean? He's like, oh, it, 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 with, with a vine, uh, um, you don't just you know, prune like you would, say, a tree. You actually have to prune uh, uh, even further back than normal. In fact, you even prune areas of the vine that actually have produced for a long time because the longer it's produced fruit, it becomes woody. And so the phrase is, Oh, those grapes are from old wood. And so I, I, I remembered this when I was looking up this, this, word, uh, um, this word for corrupted tainted. And, and in, in pruning, this is what uh, um, the internet says about pruning vines. Uh, pruning vines need, uh, uh, vines need aggressive 
pruning. Even uh, producing vines need to be pruned and they need to be cut back. Uh, if not, it will taint the fruit and will cause it to be old wood. So here, again, Paul is saying to the pruned, they will produce fruit. But even in areas where fruit has been producing, you st it still needs to be pruned in our lives. Again, the most common mistake in pruning is not pruning hard enough. So how do we apply this idea? Because I don't know if you're like me and I actually have no idea about pruning. <laughs> I, I, I remember reading about this thinking, okay, that's really cool. But, but here's the key. This word comes to tainted, that even areas in our lives that are producing fruit, if we are not in a position that's willing for that er those areas of our life to be pruned, then the fruit that we're producing just also tastes tainted. Think about this, that, that even areas in our lives that are actually producing fruit can be tainted if there's never any change. Now, with a foundation of grace, of love and acceptance, it's not hard to position ourselves for pruning because we understand that pruning isn't cutting away, but rather allowing for new growth. This is what Paul says in Hebrews. It's Hebrews 4, verse 12. And it says this. I think it's verse 12, yeah. For the word of God is alive and powerful. It is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God. Everything is naked and exposed before his eyes, and he is the one to whom we are accountable. The word of God is living and active. And I don't have time to, to really delve deep, but that particular word for the word of God is logos. It means spoken word. And essentially, it's, it, 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 what Paul is highlighting here, or sorry, the author of Hebrews is highlighting here, is that when we allow and we surround ourselves with the word of God through, through teaching, through worship, through relationships and accountabilities, through reading his word, we are opening ourselves or making room for the Holy Spirit to come in and divide, to come in and essentially prune and cut away. We're making room for this constant pruning. And if our lives don't reflect this constant change and shaping by the Holy Spirit, even if we are producing fruit in our lives, our fruit is tasting old. And to the, the pruned they will produce fruit. But to those who sit unwilling to change, understand that to those around us, our fruit begins to taste stale. It begins to taste woody. I don't uh, uh, We experience this all the time. Have you ever, like, eaten fruit in a country where that fruit is from? <laughs> So my big experience is cantaloupe in Costa Rica. Do you know that cantaloupe and honeydew taste different? You wouldn't know that until you had it in, in, in Costa Rica, where it is vastly different. And so tasting that and then having a piece of cantaloupe here is like having a muted version of what could be really, really, really good. You know what I'm talking about? That like, just not quite right. And so, church, how do we position ourselves to allow for this pruning? 
And, and honestly, it's, it is only found when we make room and value relationship with the God that prunes. Now, if we look at Hebrews again, the word of God is living and it's active. It's sharper than any sword and it divides. It gets right in there. And sometimes when we look at things like that, we're like, yeah, okay, so now I just need to read the word of God. And that's right. And I, I, if I just got to listen to teaching, that's good. And listen to worship, that's awesome. All those things are good. But if all that stuff does not connect to a relationship with the God that prunes, then we're not really being pruned. Let me give you an example. We can sit our teaching. You can come and hear me teach and preach. And I think I'm pretty good. And I think Cody's pretty good. And I think James is really good. I think Melissa's amazing. But, but we're people, right? And sometimes what we say, maybe it's not perfect. Maybe it's not right. Maybe what I'm teaching is, comes out of a brokenness of my own heart. And, and we see this because right now on YouTube, we can literally find any teaching that we want to find. And we can find people who sound incredibly convincing teaching things that are not the gospel of Jesus Christ. They have the appearance of the gospel, but the heart is not the gospel. So then are we being pruned by the gospel that divides bone and marrow? No. The only way is through relationship. When we have a devotional life and a relationship a relationship with God that allows the Holy Spirit to continuously mold us. That's when we begin to produce the fruit of the gospel. When I was reading this, this is kind of, and kind of going through this, this is kind of the statement I thought of. That actually what gives us conviction is not the number of our sins. Because grace covers that. You can have like 40 sins, you can have one. And if you're like me, when I think of conviction and when I think of sin, my mind automatically goes to really, really big things, right? Sin is like obviously over here and like not sin is here. You know what I mean? So like adultery, whoa, okay, that's sin. And then everything else is kind of fine. It's not so bad. But this is not what I'm, I'm talking about the pruning, that even good parts of our lives need pruning. This isn't like this black and white you know, what's sin, what's not sin? How far can I push the envelope that is, so God will still love me? That's already taken care of. See, grace establishes this, that God is already pleased with us. He, he can't love you any more or any less. This isn't about, you know, finding loopholes around sin so I can still come to church with a clear conscience. I'm talking about being planted and thriving in our everyday lives needs this position where we are constantly being challenged by the Holy Spirit. And if we have found ourselves in our faith, in our relationship, where we haven't been challenged in a very long time, then it is a measuring stick of our actual relationship with God. Because Scripture teaches that a live and active relationship with God equals constant pruning. And so if uh, um, some indications are, if we are easily offended when someone does something that we don't like. It's because we're not in a position where we're being pruned. If we are easily agitated, if we have literally cha not changed in 25, if someone says to you, and this is the, the nature of your character, that Sam, man, he is consistent and he's been the same for 30 years. Sometimes we hold that with pride. 
oh yeah, I'm consistent. But that's a really bad indication of a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. That's a pretty bad indication of a spirit-filled believer. Because we're constantly being shaped and we're constantly being changed. And so what gives us conviction is not the number of our sins, but I think it's the sight of God's holiness. And only when we see our lives in contrast to who God is, do we really have conviction. Let me give you an example of what I mean. So about 20 years ago, uh, I was uh, going to Bible college. I think it's 20. I'm making up a year, but I think I'm older than I think I am. Anyways, when I was in Bible college, uh, uh, I used to tour with the school, and we would go to different churches across North America, and we would, like, you know, essentially advertise the school. And so one of the areas we went to was New York, and I got to spend time in New York City, which is really, really cool. I was, like, super pumped. City boy, I think it's really, really cool. And so one of the first things I did was the absolute most core. I wanted to be a tourist. That was my goal. And the first thing I did when I got to New York is I went to one of those tour shops, I spent 5 bucks U.S., and I got a I Love New York t-shirt. Now, if you've seen those, they're white and then black letters with a red heart. I Love New York. And there was, like, eight of us who got these shirts. And so I'm wearing this shirt. I'm walking around New York, and I am, like, 100% taking pictures, went to Broadway, you know that little corner with the thing? I was there pointing at it. Oh, I've seen that, right? And uh, anyways, so spent all day walking around New York, and then we went back into the place that we're staying, this house that we're staying, and I looked over. Uh, her name was Abigail. I looked over at her shirt. I'm like, your shirt's great. And, and she's like, your shirt's great. Like, what? I looked down, and literally, there was like soot on my shirt, and it was a hot day in New York. There was no fun. It's literally exhaust, right? But until I saw the contrast between what is white and what is now tainted, I had no idea that my shirt was dirty, right? Because to me, that shirt was clean. Hey, I bought a white shirt. I walked around in New York all day, and it's still white. It's the same thing with our lives. If we don't have a relationship with a God who is holy, the God who is righteous, the God is, because that is who he is, then we never have the contrast that shows our own lives. And so conviction is healthy. It's actually part of this relationship that we have with God. And the measuring stick of a healthy relationship with God, the measuring stick of a life that's spent filled with the Holy Spirit is a life actually lived in this conviction where there's this constant pruning and a constant producing of fruit. This is where Jesus says, I didn't come to judge the world, but I came to give the world life. Zoe, dynamic ever-changing life. And a dynamic life isn't a stagnant life. It doesn't look the same five years later, ten years later, but it's growing and it's changing. And my prayer and my heart is that when you look at me, you don't see the same Sam from five years ago. Because that's an indication that, man, I need to press into my relationship with Jesus Christ that I need to make room for the Holy Spirit to still prune. This isn't about, you know, a, a, a number of sins competition. Oh, I only have four sins, so I'm fine. This is just literally, I am in relationship with the Holy Spirit. 
And I love to picture the Holy Spirit like a gardener. And uh, when I grew up as a kid, uh, on my backyard neighbor, we had a back, not a, we had a backyard and a back um, drive. What are those things called? <laughs> I just called them a back drive. A back alley, that's right. And then right across the street was this guy, and he, was, he used to build barrels. And he was another Italian guy. And I, I, I would call him El, El Vecchio, which means the old guy. Now, I, thinking about it, that's probably kind of mean, but that was his name. And, and, and I would always go, he was like my friend. I remember I would go to his yard, and he was a gardener. Not just like fruits and vegetables, but he loved flowers. And every, uh, um, before spring, he would always go in, and he would literally rip out areas of his garden and plant new things. In my brain, like as a kid, I didn't fully understand that. Like if you have something that's good, why would you rip it up and whatever, right? But that's the joy of gardening, right? Every year is something new. And I think this is what the Holy Spirit loves to do in our own lives. He loves to walk through the garden of our lives and just saying, hey, right now, I want this to grow. And see this blessing from four years ago? It's time for a new one. It's still perfectly good, but I'm going to uproot it and here's a new one. And he challenges areas of our lives. Hey, you know, one of the earlier challenges I had in my life is I got really, really into reading. So I was reading all these books, all these books on theology, and, and, and uh, I got really into like things like heaven and hell, all that kind of reading and studying and studying and studying. And, and I remember this conviction, do you remember a relationship with me? Where literally reading about God was like my idol versus a relationship with God. Reading isn't bad, but this was an area the Holy Spirit was like, I need to do some gardening. That conviction. Believers, we are called to produce fruit that stands up contrary to our culture. And the only way we can do that is if we are constantly being pruned by the Holy Spirit. The Bible refers to us as a lighthouse. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Don't hide it under a bush. Another example is that we are called to be an oasis in a dry and weary land. But if our oasis is just words and not um, the living out of our lives, then we're more like a mirage. The world is coming to us looking for salvation, yet finding nothing but desert. These are really harsh words, but hear me, guys. If we are relying on old blessings, old calling, past prayers, past connections, we're missing out from the life that God has for us today. And this is the heart of this, guys. We need a fresh move of the Holy Spirit. And I am 1,000% convinced. I don't actually think that's a mathematical term, but there's an extra zero there. That's how convinced I am that that starts with pruning, that starts with repentance, that starts with an openness that says, Holy Spirit, what are areas of my life where I have become old and stagnant? Jesus uses this example, and I'm going to totally butcher the quote, that he wants to give us new wine, but you don't put new wine in an old wineskin. There's nothing wrong with 
old and deep and dear connections and relationship with God. But if there's no newness to it, church, it's, it's, time, for, it's time for some pruning. It's time to, to kill those sacred cows, make some new wineskins, and receive the fresh wine of the Holy Spirit. And this is my heart. I am desperate for not the same thing, but for the fresh wind of the Holy Spirit. There's enough sailors in this room that, that we know that you can't keep the sail in the same position and then expect to receive the same winds. The wind is ever moving. I don't know. Austin, if you want to start coming up and, and we're going to close with a song. And we want to make room, again, if, uh, if people who are, uh, um, if we want to get some people up here willing to pray. Church, uh, if your heart is like my heart and you want a fresh wind and a fresh move of the Holy Spirit, it literally starts uh, um, with this self-reflection. It starts on our knees. It starts here with us. And let me say this, an indication that the teaching that we're sitting under, um, if it causes us to focus on the people around us, judging the people around us, looking at people around us, that that's bad fruit. But good teaching, the word of God that divides soul and marrow, bone and marrow, heart and soul, that's the stuff that angles right here, that looks inward. And doesn't say, they need a fresh move of God. It says, I need a fresh move of God. It doesn't say, they need to repent. It says, I need to repent. It doesn't say, they need to change. It says, I need to change. It's inward looking. It's inward looking that releases an upward relationship. So as we sing this, I invite you to stand with me and begin to position our hearts. Because if your heart is like my heart, then the question and the prayer and the worship that needs to take place is, Holy Spirit, have your way. The psalmist David said this, God, search my heart. See if there's anything unclean within me. We can make that more modern. Holy Spirit, search my heart. Begin to prune the areas that have become old. I want a fresh move of your Holy Spirit. Just begin to declare that with me. I want a fresh move of the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, I make room for you. Holy Spirit, I am open to your conviction. I am open to your change. I am open to your pruning. Holy Spirit, I turn where my focus and my growth has been in the wrong direction. And I turn into your grace, into your love, into your mercy. This morning, let's worship.